to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week on my Facebook page. Uh, Though these days, if a viable alternative becomes available, uh, I may look into moving pretty much with everyone else in the world. Um, But for now, I'm still there and I'm still posting uh, things. So yeah, Um, you can also find uh, this episode and previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and other fine purveyors of podcasts, thanks to my wonderful husband. So tonight, we're going to focus on the skepticism side of science. I feel like I haven't really done that in a long time, specifically devoted an entire show uh, to talking about sort of how skepticism and science intersect, and how sometimes having a Um, idea about skepticism can help in science. There is actually an argument to be made and that has been made by some uh, professional skeptics that skepticism has a slightly different set of uh, tools from actual science and that it can be really helpful to have that sort of perspective of sort of quote-unquote professional skepticism when it comes to even uh, scientific methods and um, the ability for people to sort of see where their biases are because that's a lot of what skeptics try and do is they try and sort of point people in the direction of by the way this is why you're thinking this way because you have x y or z bias okay So tonight, I definitely wanted to start off, though, uh, I am a bit late to this party, but I wanted to make sure that you heard about this because it was sort of a giant, crazy headline. And then, of course, everybody had to roll it back, which was, of course, the headline that 7% of Scott Kelly's DNA had diverged from his brothers while he was in orbit. Now, that sounds reasonably uh, understandable if you don't think about it for more than, you know, 12 seconds, Um, or if you don't have any idea about how uh, DNA works, and how um, much of our DNA we share with one another, because if this was true, he would have literally ceased to be human. (laughs) That's not an exaggeration, that's literal. Uh, Humans are all 99% similar in their DNA profiles. So a full 7% would have made him incredibly different. Um, With chimps, who are our closest uh, cousins, the chimps and the bonobos, we share 98% of our DNA. So if his DNA was suddenly 7% different from other humans, that would would be serious science fiction time. Uh, That would be crazy and slightly terrifying, probably. So what it turned out was that there was a large change in the expression of Scott Kelly's genes, with 7% of those changes to expression persisting after he returned to Earth. So what this actually means is that his DNA itself didn't change, but basically what happened is that his body had epigenetic changes. So epigenetics is how your genes are expressed. Um, And so it's not 
you can have epigenetic changes, which means that you can suddenly, due to a range of factors, including a lot of environmental factors, a gene can be shut off or a gene could be turned off or it could be amplified or it could be decreased. So any of those things are um, changes in gene expression. And so what it means is that his body adjusted its expression of proteins in order to attempt to compensate for the odd conditions of living in space. Now, again, this is perfectly normal for all people. All people have epigenetic changes throughout their lifetime. And in fact, even identical twins, by the time that they uh, are adults, won't have identical genomes because there will be some small mutations that don't actually change the gene itself, but there are uh, small nucleotide um, SNPs, which is single nucleotide um, polymorphisms, is the uh, technical term where uh, you might have an A and someone else might have a C, but it all still works uh, exactly the same. And so it's just that what was surprising was that this was a large amount of change uh, than would otherwise be seen if people were just living the same kind of life uh, here on Earth. And so it's an important and uh, very interesting bit of knowledge, but it is not nearly as crazy and amazing as the original uh, headlines suggested. So I did want to make sure that we all uh, were on the same page about that. It's still really interesting and cool, but... Uh, I did want to make the point that if he had changed 7% of his DNA, he would no longer be human. <laughs> okay, so let's now move on to an animal that may or may not have washed up on a Georgia shore recently. So reports uh, recently surfaced of a quote-unquote sea creature uh, found by boater Jeff Warren and his son. Uh, that was this past Friday at Wolf Island National Wildlife Refuge in Golden Isle, Georgia, uh, which happens to be in the Darien McIntosh County. And so the reason I say may or may not have washed up on the beach is that for one thing, there's a local river monster legend called the Altamaha. Um, and basically, it is a snake-like creature said to inhabit the local Altamaha River. And also, uh, the other big issue of why this may or may not be real is that there's pretty scant evidence as to what was going on there. Uh, there was just one picture from fairly far away and a short video, uh, and both were shot from the exact same angle. Uh, so there is the possibility that this is a hoax. Um, and I'm not saying it is, it's just that, that those tend to be kind of hallmarks of hoaxes, but it could be completely real. They could have found a real animal. Um, and if they did... What I'm going to assume is that it has a prosaic explanation. It's almost certainly a just regular animal that looks a little weird. It's definitely interesting, said Jason Lee, the program manager for the non-game conservation section of the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. It is what appears to be a strange creature that has washed up on one of our local islands. 
Now, early reports pitched the creature as up to five feet long. However, Lee suggests it's probably only around 1.5 feet long. It's a small animal or part of an animal, Lee told Live Science. He suspects the remains, if real, were likely that of a frilled shark. The head of the creature is missing, which would have made identification much easier. Now, if it was a frilled shark, it was most likely a juvenile because they do get quite a bit bigger. Now, again, this explanation is speculative. Um, But it turns out that frilled sharks are such a rare find that they often elicit news stories uh, themselves due to their odd appearance. Um, So they've got these frilled gills around their necks or quote unquote necks, what you would consider a neck. Um, And they have these weird teeth, uh, weird needle like teeth. And uh, they're just they're weird looking. Um, If you've ever seen one, you'll know. Um, and so uh, with no samples having been, having been taken of the animal and only that scant photographic evidence, the identity of the creature, uh, whether or not it was real, will most likely remain unknown. Now, um, getting back to the local legend of the Alta Mahaha, um, I think that there is, you know, unfortunately, even if it is was an actual creature because of this local legend, it lends itself more to the idea that this might have been a hoax. Um, But again, it's completely up in the air because we have such a sparse amount of information about what actually happened. And that's uh, something that often happens in these kinds of cases. And so as a skeptic, you have to both be skeptical and say, oh, this might be a hoax, but you can't say for sure because... It could have been a real creature, um, absolutely. And so Lee continues uh, talking about this legend. He says, The legend is similar to the Loch Ness Monster in its description of a snake-like beast. It goes in and out of the murky waters, popping up here and there. Now, the reason I uh, continue to talk about this is that it's well enough known in the counties in the county that their tourism website actually uses an illustration of the supposed creature. You have to admit, the carcass is pretty close to what you would expect of a baby Altamahaha, uh, notedly with amusement. And so, uh, yeah, the other thing, um, you know, some people will suggest that this might be some sort of previously undiscovered deep sea creature. Um, But according to Lee, again, uh, the carcass lacks the sort of gelatinous quality um, that is usually found in deep ocean creatures. Uh, And so they usually have um, a sort of more spongy gelatinous form to them because uh, they have to cope with the intense pressures found in the deep ocean. And that's normally how they do that. So, yeah, Um, unfortunately, I fear this is going to be one of those things where we don't ever actually find out exactly what it was or what happened, but uh, I think I can live with that. (laughs) Okay, so now let's look at another aspect of skepticism, which is that yet another study has come out recently to suggest that contrary to what some might view as obvious, violent video games have once again not been shown to increase the amount of violence shown by players in their regular day-to-day lives. 
And, you know, this is an important part of skepticism because it just seems kind of intuitive. The idea that, you know, if someone's playing a violent video game, that they're much more likely to go out and actually try and shoot someone. But when you actually do the science over and over and over again, it's been proven that that is not actually the case. So this new study published in Nature's journal Molecular Psychology um, is by a team of German researchers, and they looked at at three groups of typically non-game playing volunteers. So they broke up 77 uh, non-gamer volunteers um, into three groups. And so first they gave them several questionnaires and personality assessments uh, at the beginning of the experiment to get sort of a baseline. And then for two months, one group uh, was told to play Grand Theft Auto 5 for 30 minutes a day. The second group was told to play Sims 3, uh, which I do note is usually a nonviolent game, though I have seen videos of people using it to kill their Sims repeatedly, um, and it is as disturbing as that sounds, um, but I digress. Uh, I would assume that as non-gamers, they would probably have played it a little more the way it is intended to, do, to be done. Um, and so, the, of course, the third group was a control group, so they were simply just asked to return in two months. And so then all three groups retook the initial questionnaire and personality assessments. And so um, the first thing, of course, I will say is that this is a small study. 77 uh, participants is not a particularly robust study. So it does have to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, But it adds to a wealth of similar studies which have had similar results. Um, And so the researchers found no significant difference between the levels of aggression before and after the gaming sessions. They also found no change in the levels of empathy, impulse control, levels of anxiety and depression, and a host of other personality aspects between either the individuals before and after the gaming sessions and between the groups themselves. Asked to comment on the study by Gizmodo, Chris Ferguson, a psychology professor at Stetson University in Florida who studies how video games affect society, noted that we've seen some folks argue that effects ought to accumulate over time, but this study contradicts that claim. He adds, I think that this is an important piece of evidence that should guide us to rethink our beliefs about whether violent video games do or do not influence aggression. And so um, Simone Kuhn, uh, a researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Germany, uh, and who is the lead author of the study, suggests suggests that their research, in fact, contradicts the American Psychological Association's 2015 statement, which basically said that they believed there was a clear link between video games and violence. And so, um, yeah, this was a very weird thing because uh, many, many, many researchers in the field did not agree. And in fact, 200 researchers at the time uh, signed on to a statement, uh, an open letter of sorts to the APA, asking them not to publish this policy statement because they didn't agree. Um And of course, many of them fear that this statement gives cover to organizations like the NRA, which are much more likely to be implicated in the levels of gun violence in the U.S. 
Uh, Several studies have shown, including several from Harvard's Injury Control Research Center, um, that uh, a country's gun laws and access to firearms have much higher correlations to overall gun violence. So while it may seem intuitive that gun violence in video games might lead directly to real gun violence, you have to remember the amount of video games that are played throughout the world and take a step back to note that if there was a real correlation, the phenomenon should be much more widespread. And so basically, you know, people are playing video games all over the world, um, even these kinds of, you know, GTA 4, uh, you know, violent uh, first-person shooter games. People are playing them all over Europe, all over Asia, all over Africa, South America, everywhere. Uh, Australia, all the continents. I bet you there's even, a, I would bet even money that there's even a game console in Antarctica. Um, And so, you know, people are playing them on all continents. And there are plenty of countries that don't have problems with massive gun violence. Um, Kuhn, however, does note uh, that more research needs to be done on young children. Uh, So uh, she suggests that that might be warranted as their grasp on the line between fantasy and reality is much less bright than in teens and adults. But it cannot be said enough that access to firearms is the single greatest factor in gun violence. Pretty simple. If children don't have access to guns, they cannot act out gun violence as seen in video games, TVs or movies. And of course, the easiest place to find people trying to deflect blame from the NRA and other uh, organizations that try and push this narrative that it is violent video games that are the problem, uh, especially in America, is Twitter. So that brings us to our next story. Uh, A recent study in science sought to quantify the spread of Twitter rumors. And it's just as depressing as you might expect. So it turns out that the old saw attributed to Mark Twain, but rather deliciously not actually ever spoken as far as we can tell, by Mark Twain, uh, does remain true, which is that a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting its shoes on. Excuse me. And of course, in this day and age, a lie can travel around the world several times over before anyone uh, who knows the truth can even notice. And by that time, the truth often looks like a desperate cover-up. And so a team from MIT tracked falsehoods and truths from a huge repository of tweets. Uh, This is a database that basically indexed all tweets written between 2006 and 2017. That is a huge amount of tweets. Good Lord. Um, And so according to Sanan Aral, a professor of information technology at MIT, whose specialty is social media networks, uh, He says that lies and false news moved through Twitter farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth. Now, of course, the first thing to ask is, how are we determining what is true and what is false? 
Well, in order to maintain an apolitical view on the veracity of tweets, the group outsourced decisions on truth or falseness to a range of fact-checking organizations, uh, Snopes.com, PolitiFacts.com, and um, four other organizations. And so on each item examined, the organizations maintained between a 95 and 98 percent agreement um, on their um, decision as to whether or not it was true or false. And so basically what they did was that in order to identify tweets of interest to the study, they used a very easy criteria, actually. They searched for tweets that someone had retweeted that including a link to a fact-checking organization. So for instance, if you saw a ridiculous tweet and you retweeted it with a, you know, um, link to Snopes.com, that tweet would then have been pulled out for this um, for this study. And so what they did was they then retraced, retraced those tweets back through what they what the researchers called a cascade to the original source of the rumor. And so using this criteria, they found 126,000 true or false cascades involving a total of 3 million people. They found that false cascades outpaced true ones by virtually all metrics, while the top 1% of true rumors rarely spread to more than 1,000 people, the top 1% of falsehoods routinely reached between 1,000 and 100,000 people. Now, of course, unsurprisingly, in the current climate, political rumors were the most prevalent with 45,000 thousand of the 126,000 tweets reviewed as being either true or false uh, rumors. The peak of false political rumors was, again unsurprisingly, during the 2016 election. One single Twitter account started 4,700 false rumors. And these false cascades were more likely to begin from young, unverified accounts with small numbers of followers. And so this shows just how powerful the spread of these falsehoods were. These weren't being put out by people with thousands and thousands and thousands of followers who would then, you know, spread it out along the network. It was these young people with dedicated accounts that were doing these sorts of things. And somehow it was still getting out into the larger Twitter sphere and um, moving through the networks. Using statistical models, they found that falsehoods were 70% more likely to be retweeted than the truth. Now, the authors suggest that novelty plays an important role in the frequency of retweets. They note that when unconstrained by the truth, Novelty is easy is easily added to tweets, um, but they were quick to uh, to note that they can't prove that that's true. Uh, and in fact, the authors are very honest with the interpretation of their results. They cannot claim any causality between nov- between novelty and endorsement, but they provide convincing evidence that novelty plays an important role in spreading fake information. And um, that's from Manlio Di Domenico, 
a scientist at the Bruno Kessler Foundation's Center for Information and Communication Technology in Italy. And he actually tracked um, another rumor, which was he actually did a study on how the rumor that the Higgs boson had been discovered, how that spread on Twitter. And of course, that turned out to be a true rumor um, that was leaked on Twitter before the uh, actual, um, you know, big event was supposed to take place to uh, announce that they got scooped by Twitter. And so um, interestingly, they also found something that I actually thought was really surprising, which is that so-called bots, or um, basically they are machine learning accounts that just continually are retweeting things indiscriminately, that they actually are indiscriminate. So they were not responsible for the faster spread of false rumors. Using analysis to detect bot accounts, they found that they spread falsehoods and truths at an equal rate. Unfortunately, none of the researchers have any good suggestions for a way to fix the problem. They actually suspect that labeling certain things as false news might actually help them spread faster. And of course, they note that no one has stepped up to claim the right to determine what is true and what is false. Twitter has specifically said that they are not in the business of determining truth. So it seems like you're going to have to stick to the old fashioned way of doing it. Um, So the best advice I can give is to continue to use those very sites that while they don't necessarily say that they actually actively claim whether or not something is true or false, they give you the best possible idea of whether something is true or false. Um, And so again, that's Snopes and Political Fact and um, other websites like those. Okay, so let us take a break for a moment and do some PSAs. And then we will come back and we will talk about what is a perennial skeptic topic, which is, of course, aliens. All right, so hang on for just a minute and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. I'm so glad we left that stupid party. No joke. Hey, baby, are you an overdue library book? Because you got fine written all over you. Oh, barf. <laughs> what about that girl with the hoop earrings? Ridiculous. When she was dancing... Megan, I'm... look out! Look out! <gasps> Oh my god, Becky. Becky, are you okay? My arm. I think it's broken. Can you bend it? It's already bent in the wrong direction. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry. I only had a few drinks. I was just buzzed. Really? Just buzzed? Yeah, I swear. Well, in that case, my arm is fine. Ah, that's better. You're really okay? You're serious, Becky? No, genius. I'm not serious. Buzzed driving. Maybe we should stop acting like it's no big deal. 
Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. When you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash CET. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique. Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times. But take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. You are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Narkowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I meet with our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov slash MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. Okay, we're back. And before we get back into it, I do want to mention... Uh, one thing that's happening tomorrow, which is the March for Our Lives, uh, topical to uh, this show as well. And so if you want to join the local march, they are going to be meeting at the Northampton High School at uh, noon. So that is tomorrow, uh, Saturday. Uh, and so, yeah, it is going to be March 24th. So if you're listening to this as a podcast, hopefully you didn't miss it, but um, I'm sure, unfortunately, there will be a next time. Okay, let's talk about aliens. Aliens are much more fun, even though not really. Anyways, (laughs) um, so this is actually a revisit of a story that has been swirling around the internet for nigh on years. I'm not sure if I've actually talked about this particular piece on this show at some point. Um, But, you know, um, it is something that I'm certainly have known about for some time. And so um, I'm happy to report on it now because unsurprisingly, it's been found to have a completely reasonable explanation and is not in any way, shape or form evidence of aliens. 
So what this is, is that back in 2003, a tiny skeleton was found in Chile's Atacama Desert. It had an elongated skull with pointed eye sockets, an underdeveloped face and jaw, and odd skeletal features. Scientific research on the skeleton was first published in 2013 and suggested that the skeleton was not extraterrestrial, because of course not. Uh, However, there were certain irregularities, uh, for instance, in the DNA um, that, of course, left the door open for UFO researchers to continue to claim that it was evidence of an alien-human hybrid. Well, five years and a full genomic study later, scientists now feel confident that the skeleton represents a Chilean female fetus. Lead study author Gary Nolan, a professor of microbiology and immunology at Stanford University, notes, however, that the study of this skeleton might lead to new research on genomic diseases and possible treatments for bone trauma. And so, despite the fact that it has had a rather sordid uh, trail into the world of science um, as this sort of beacon of uh, UFO fetishism, uh, it may actually end up being really helpful to real science. And um, so after a battery of tests, including x-rays, CAT scans, and DNA sequencing, the researchers have determined that it was a cascade of mutations that led to the unusual anatomy of the fetus. For instance, premature fusing of the skull plates is what caused the elongated skull, and premature bone development is why it was so hard to determine just what age the skeleton represented. And in fact, original estimates ranged from a 22-week-old fetus to a 6- to 8-year-old child to even a 40-year-old adult based on the bone evidence. Another potential anomaly was that 10 pairs of genes rather than the usual 12 were extracted from the skeleton's ribs. The researchers believed that the oddities in DNA turned out to be from degradation due to age and exposure, uh, and so they found mutations in seven of the genes, uh, of the fetus's genes, which are known to affect premature joint fusion, abnormalities in ribcage formation, skull malformation, and to inhibit the development of bone and cartilage. Now, while it is, again, while it is not evidence of extraterrestrial visitation, it still represents a quite fascinating case study in genetic disease. An example of so many mutations that affect bone development had never before been reported. The era of single gene equals single disease is just about over. It's now time to look at the more subtle effects when genes interact, Nolan wrote in an email. In isolation, a gene might have no effect, but combined with other genes, the outcome can be dramatic. These studies show that certain gene mutations can vote towards a given body plan or disease. And again, by looking more closely at the way in which these mutations affected the skeleton, you might be able to use this knowledge to help develop future to help future patients with bone injury injuries or malformations. Deeper knowledge about bone growth disorders will point to how normal growth must develop. 
uh, he said, it might offer understanding of how we can, say with drugs, stimulate bone growth in cases of catastrophic accidents to help patients. So I am very glad to see that this saga has come to an end uh, and that this fetus, who was almost certainly mourned by her parents, can stop being a poster child for UFO exploitation and instead perhaps become ultimately instrumental in future medical breakthroughs. Now, of course, part of why I'm so passionate about this is that this is not the only skeleton from the ancient Americas that is being used to suggest that humans and aliens have interbred, and it's not the only one in which questionable uh, techniques have been used on it. And so um, there is a new video that's popped up on the web uh, called Uncovering Nazca, and it is hyping the supposed discovery of a group of five um, mummified bodies from Peru um, that have, for instance, three-fingered hands. Now, the mummies were supposedly discovered in 2015 by tomb robbers called um, Huacueros, and uh, so basically, these are people who make a living looting uh, sacred Nazca and other um, Peruvian sites and selling artifacts basically to the highest bidder. Unfortunately, with few economic opportunities available to locals, this kind of looting is not uncommon in areas like this. Um, and so videos about the mummies have popped up on sites like Gaia.com and TheAlienProject.com, uh, which, as you can assume, are both full of questionable at best information. Um, the mummies, which... Uh, legitimate researchers believe are basically cobbled together um, from trafficked actual um, uh, Nazkin uh, mummies are covered, have been covered in a white plaster-like subject um, and the uh, substance, excuse me, um, which most likely was used specifically to help cover up the fact that they had been manipulated and cobbled together to look more alien. And so in response to this, a group of a dozen Peruvian mummy researchers, uh, legitimate researchers, have published a statement condemning such practices and noting that it violates numerous national and international laws. Now, supposedly in charge of the quote unquote investigation is a Russian man named Konstantin Korotkov. And uh, he told RT, which is Russia Today, that, quote, the mummies could be extraterrestrials or bio-robots. Sigh. Unsurprisingly, the university he's supposed to be affiliated with has no record of him, and another supposed affiliation doesn't even exist. His personal website is a scam site for selling something called BioWell. And what's, again, really upsetting about this is that the mummies were almost certainly cobbled together from actual Nazca mummies who could have been properly excavated in a way that would have given us more information about this fairly enigmatic people. Um, and so it's just very upsetting. Um, looting in Peru had uh, at some point become so bad that the U.S. actually had to restrict the import of artifacts from the country. However, it apparently uh, there is some improvement. And uh, so things do seem to be looking up. 
The protection of archaeological sites has greatly improved in the last decade with the establishment of legal requirements for environmental and heritage impact studies, the establishment of the Ministry of Culture, and the employment of more professional archaeologists, notes Anne Peters, a consulting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. However, some looters and traffickers in antiquities still exist in Peru, as well as in the United States and other countries. Um, and of course, trafficking in antiquities is a humongous, terrible, just incredibly depressing uh, worldwide problem. And of course, this is one of my big problems with UFO fanatics. It's one thing to enjoy looking at the sky and trying to find oddities and speculating about what they might represent. But it's quite another thing to actually manipulate human remains to try and make them look like they are signs of aliens or alien hybrid, alien human hybrids. This is a revolting practice, but it's fueled by people's obsession with finding proof of UFOs and aliens. And of course, this doesn't even begin to get into the subject, uh, which I've talked about before, wherein such supposed artifacts and uh, specimens are used as proof of racist ideas about ancient people's ability to create their own cities and monuments. So yes, very, very, very distasteful. Um, okay, so let's switch gears now <laughs> and talk about a different kind of uh, need for skepticism, which this one you almost don't even need to be any kind of real skeptic. Pretty much, I think that anyone who looks at this study would have been like, wait, what? <laughs> that can't possibly be true. Um, and so I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's basically just crazy. Um but I think it's interesting in the way that people, uh, because of our culture that's so open now with all the ways that you can self-publish and you can have websites and you can tweet and you can have a Facebook page that, you know, a lot of people are trying to put out their ideas there by circumventing um, peer-reviewed research journals. And of course, you know, there is problem, there are problems with peer review, um, but it's still the best way that we have to know whether or not something is approaching the truth. And uh, so <laughs> luckily, the website where I found this item understood fully that this is not reputable, that it is non-peer reviewed, uh, that there is nothing about this that is in any way, shape or form uh, should be reported as approaching truth. So apparently... Author Rita Strakoshka, uh, who lists her credentials as an MPS degree in clinical psychology from Albanian University, has self-published as an Amazon ebook a 56-page manifesto, as far as I'm concerned, uh, suggesting that there is a connection between unhealthy diets and homosexuality. So it claims, apparently, that homosexuals often eat large amounts of high glycemic index foods and fat or eat an imbalanced diet leaning towards carbohydrates. Some studies show an increased rate of obesity among homosexuals. Gay men, lesbians, and bisexual women report a higher odd 
higher odds of sugar-sweetened beverage consumption than straight men and women. Access to a high-calorie diet and alcoholic drinks was limited to the social elite circles in the past. Homosexuality, as well, appears to have been more frequent among that group. (sighs) The e-book then goes on to suggest that switching to a healthy diet with no sugar and getting adequate sleep will quote-unquote cure homosexuality in individuals. Now, I assume that I don't need to spend any time refuting or debunking that. The entire thing is ludicrous on on its face. Um, And there is nothing about it that is even worthy of debate. Um, So I'm just going to move on to the next weird study um, that is sort of uh, a cousin to this one. Um, Though this one was actually done by researchers who are actual researchers, but um, I, I believe that they are suffering from, um, there is a, in recent years, there has been a spate of people who have uh, been trying to develop this form of psychology called uh, evolutionary psychology. And um, while there are some ways in which this might be useful, I tend to find that uh, Evo psych papers almost always are used to justify some sort of misogyny um, or some other weird uh, traditional view of the relationship between men and women. Um, I haven't seen a lot of EvoPsych that uh, doesn't seem to do that. And uh, a lot of the researchers seem really unself-aware of that. Um, So I am skeptical. (laughs) And uh, yeah, So this study, quote unquote, um, is actually by Cypriot researchers who, like I said, they're genuine researchers uh, at the University of Nicosia. Um, And they suggest that lesbianism developed as a uh, useful tool towards men's arousal. And so the authors argue that a majority of men respond that they would find it attractive if a woman had same-sex attraction, uh, at least occasionally. And so therefore, women became lesbians because men enjoy watching lesbians. Um, (laughs) So yeah, Um, however, uh, Diana Fleischman, a psychologist at the University of Portsmouth, England, uh, notes that, for instance, quote, the paper totally ignores a lot of other possible hypotheses and makes claims that are really not supported by the evidence they provide. For instance, she notes uh, that they don't discuss the effect of pornography on men's current interest in lesbianism. Lead researcher Menelaos Apostolou uh, argues that sexual attraction is too instinctual to be molded by culture, uh, which I again find to be highly naive. He stands by his conclusions, though he does concede that, quote, there are additional factors that need to be taken into consideration if same-sex attraction in women is to be understood. The publication of my theory gives the opportunity for a fruitful academic dialogue where another scholar may attempt to refute, alter, or expand it and replicate my findings. Uh, It should also be noted that uh, although the uh, 
The survey was of a large population, uh, 1,509 participants. They were all heterosexual participants. Uh, And so they didn't consult any non-heterosexual people uh, to make any kind of comparison as to what they would have said um, to the questions developed. Um, And so I think that this can be really easily added to the uh, dustbin of evolutionary psychology papers uh, that will one day be considered part of the dark ages of psychological research. Um, But again, that is just my opinion, Um, though I think that it's a pretty safe one in this respect. I'm pretty sure that lesbianism did not develop um, because of the male gaze, Um, especially since, as I would like to remind everyone who probably already knows that, this uh, who's listening, lesbianism and gay. Gay attraction is not just in humans. There are lesbian, quote unquote, uh, animals throughout the animal kingdom. There are gay animals throughout the animal kingdom. And um, yeah, I think that it's pretty safe to say that uh, it is not because of the male gaze that women um, began to actually have uh, attractive feelings for other women. Okay, so let us switch gears rather sharply again. Um, And so this one is talking about, you might have seen this last week, uh, about microplastics in bottled water. Now, this is the kind of story that requires one to remember that not all information requires action. Simply because a thing is true, and especially even if it sounds scary, it doesn't mean it necessarily has any impact on the greater world. So, you know, it always recalls to mind the idea of people going out and, um, you know, trying to get signatures to ban dihydrogen monoxide, (laughs) which is, of course, water. Uh, And so as we're talking about here. Um, And so, you know, people think, oh, dihydrogen monoxide, that sounds scary. So of course we should ban it. Um, And so having microplastics in your bottled water sounds terrible, but we don't know that it is yet, (laughs) is really the thing. So let's talk about this in more detail. Researchers at SUNY Fredonia tested 250 bottles of water from 11 brands and found that 93% of the samples contained microplastics with an average of 325 particles per liter. Um, The first red flag for this right now is that the research has not yet been published in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, And again, this is a huge red flag. The research was instead commissioned by Orb Media, a nonprofit which uses journalism and data science to investigate global environmental issues. That's according to the website um, of the company. Now, there is a rich and nuanced debate to be had about research that is funded by organizations, both nonprofit and for profit, and whether or not it can be considered good science. But we're not having that debate tonight. (laughs) We've only got four minutes left. Um, So we're going to set that aside. Now, microplastics are a relatively new substance, all things considered. There is not an extensive amount of literature on how these tiny pieces of plastic, um, 
it's basically anything that's under 0.2 inches. Uh, and that's sort of around the size of a sesame seed um, or smaller. How these affect humans or the environment. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not suggesting that the fact that humans are filling both ourselves and the environment, especially the oceans, with bits of plastic is nothing to worry about. But it's important to go about figuring out what impact this plastic has using proper scientific methods and studies. Now, this story gets even more convoluted, though, in the sense of how to look at something skeptically. And so according to BBC reporting, uh, and the BBC is actually affiliated with um, Orb Media, they have a sort of um, agreement to give the BBC information, uh, the BBC reported on the findings, uh, adding that the World Health Organization is gearing up to launch a review of microplastics and their impact on public health. There's just one problem. This is actually not true. When reached for comment, uh, WHO Representative Fadela Chaib stated, for who to make an informed risk assessment, we would need to establish that microplastics occur in water at concentrations that would be harmful to human health. And as I just noted, there is little evidence to suggest that these microplastics are actually harmful at this time. Now, Chaib notes that the WHO is monitoring emerging evidence about microplastics to see where gaps might ne might be need might need to be filled in in the research. But this is very different from launching a review of the microplastics and because that would suggest that they already believe them to be dangerous to human health. Now, the study has now been submitted for peer review, so it will be interesting to see if the paper makes it through that process intact. Now, again, I want to stress, I'm not suggesting that microplastics are completely harmless, simply that we don't yet have enough information to suggest that they are dangerous, at least to human health. Several of the plastics that are associated with dangers to human health have actually been phased out of plastic bottles and therefore wouldn't be included in these microparticles. And since the major work on how microplastics impact ocean life has actually recently been retracted due to irregularities in the research, we don't yet have enough evidence on what is really going on, and thus you shouldn't panic about drinking water from a plastic bottle at least for that reason. Now, of course, I'd argue you shouldn't be using bottled water for a myriad of other reasons, uh, including that it has never been shown to be better than tap water. Um, and that in addition to, to the fact that despite being easily recycled, many water bottles are thrown away instead. It's these large pieces of plastic waste that are a known threat to the environment. Even switching to a water filtration pitcher is a huge step up from wasting money and energy and resources on plastic water bottles. And uh, so, as Ruthie from out there would surely tell you, if you could just bring your own bottle, that would be even better. <laughs> and that's it for tonight. Um, so do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. Good night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro and thank you for listening.